Don Gerica on SAFM. Mark Perryman is an author of England, Travels with a Football Nation. Mark has travelled to 2010 along with the, the football contingent. Uh, sad day in the world of football, Mark Perryman, but also a day to celebrate the life of Pele. Absolutely. I mean, Pele is an absolutely unforgettable character who reaches way, way beyond the hardcore football fans mm. and who travel around the world like I've been lucky enough to do. Um, an incredible figure. I, I was just reading about the nickname Pele, and uh, in his autobiography, he, he doesn't know what the name means. It was just something given to him by his friends, by maybe the Vasco da Gama <laughs> goalkeeper. It's, it, it doesn't really mean anything in Portuguese at all. Well, it certainly means something to... It means football, <laughs> I would say. Yes. It means... I mean, the great quote from Pelé, it's the beautiful game. Right. I mean, it absolutely sums up Pelé's philosophy of football. I mean, when you look at his proper name, in inverted commas, it's, it's like a quadruple-barreled name, mm. you know. Um, he'd have to be a very good uh, journalist to remember that and also be able to pronounce it if he's unlucky enough not to speak the Brazilian version of Portuguese. <laughs> but... I'd like to say something a bit bigger about mm-hmm. Pelé because I've been thinking about this this morning. And the late 20th century, who are the three most influential figures of the late 20th century? Mm-hmm. I would say Bob Marley, Nelson Mandela, and Pelé. Sure. And what have they all got in common? They're black men from the global south. And they reached way beyond their own national culture, their own national politics. Mm. And you'd have to be an absolutely hard-bitten racist. And, you know, you had more vote in your country than, than you deserve, when any country would deserve in the apartheid years. But mm. the respect that those three were held in is universal, absolutely universal. And he said, it's an embittered core who wouldn't love the game that was played the way that Palais played, and, and, and his entire team, who didn't, wouldn't dance to the music of Bob Marley and wouldn't hold Nelson Mandela in absolute awe of respect compared to most of the politicians in the world, and unfortunately some who followed him in South Africa. So I think, I think that's where we need to position Palais, not simply on the pitch, mm. but on the planet. I was, I'm unfortunately unlucky enough to have not have seen him play, but I know him as, as you say, the the UNESCO Goodwill Ambassador, for lack of a better word, the politician. And it's fascinating. Just in his Wikipedia page, there's Ronald Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton. The he's outside Ten Downing Street. He's even meeting Vladimir Putin. It, he, he got around and got his message across to very very important people. Yeah, what's often forgotten is that, I mean, the first World Cup I can remember watching, it's like yesterday, um, I I had a sort of lower middle class uh, background and had some upper middle class friends, and they're the ones who had the colour TV in 1970. Mm. So I nicked around Grant Ashworth's house, because he had, him and his mum and dad had a really nice uh, colour TV. Watch it. I can remember, and there's a wonderful cake. I think I end up sitting on the cake, but uh, <laughs> the cake sticks in my memory more than the four goals that reigned in against Italy. But it was the way that they played, and the way they played as a team, and preceding Palais, Garincha as well, who mm. shouldn't be forgotten, and then following Palais, Socrates as well. But when they won that World Cup in 1970, it was a murderous totalitarian regime 
in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a military. It was a military regime. Um, and unfortunately, what happens in football is it boosts it boosts the popularity of that regime. Right. Um, it gives them some kind of solidity, if you like. But Pelé, I mean, he never really spoke out particularly on politics. Um, but I'm, I know that there was real anger in Brazil when Bolsonaro seemed to try to take over the Brazilian shirt. And I think, you know, it's a shame the team didn't go further in 2022. But I think it's, it's reprehensible for a politician as, as so divisive mm. compared to a team that is so uniting worldwide. I mean, you know, it's not an accident that almost everybody in the world, their second favourite team is Brazil. <laughs> now, they're not such a strong team now, but, you know, they haven't won a World Cup since 2002. It, it's the longest break that they've ever had in terms of not winning a World Cup. But certainly the teams of the 70s, you know, particularly the, the 1970 World Cup, you know, with, I mean, people of my generation, sort of late, late, late 50s, early 60s, they will never forget that mm. team. In fact, we've got a team playing now, Mamelodi Sundowns, who uh, their nickname is the Brazilians. They've styled their kit <laughs> on the Brazilians. That's what they do. And they're winning as well. Yeah, well, we've got Norwich City. They're not quite as good as Brazil. Let's talk about... There's an ironic charm that you hear on the territories in England. I don't yeah. know if it's reached South Africa yet, but we do. it's just like watching Brazil. Which is normally sung when you're about five nil down. <laughs> <laughs> English fan humour there. Uh, let's talk about him starting to play. Started Santos at only 15. He was in the national team at 16, coming from a really poor background. That's part of the yeah. fantastic story of Pele that he comes from a poor background and was identified and managed to change the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, Pele described it as the beautiful game. In England, we call it the people's game. You know. He's very much divorced from the people now in terms of commercialisation, not just of the national game, but the European and the global game. But you look at the background of Maradona, you look at the background of Pelé, you look at the background of almost all modern footballers come from a working-class background. Mm. So in terms of the playing, the core of the players, it absolutely remains a working-class sport. I mean, very different. The cricket and rugby, which ha- rugby has changed because of professionalisation. But, you know, the thing about football is it's a one true global sport. You know, South Africa competes in the Cricket World Cup, competes in the Rugby World Cup, you know, sadly not very often in the Football World Cup. But the Cricket and Rugby World they're not World Cups. Mm. They're the British Empire and a few hands on. Mm. Whereas the Football World Cup is absolutely global, you know, which, which we and which we celebrated just a, a few weeks ago in terms of Morocco reaching the semi-final. You know, that was a, that was a historic moment. Um, so, so that's that's another reason why uh, not just Pelé but players like Maradona could were able to reach this global audience because it's a global sport. And it's, it is genuinely a sport of the people. It might be owned by the multi-millionaires. The multi-billionaires may well commodify it. The sponsors, you know, insist on changing the names of stadiums and plaster their logos and everything. But it does remain fundamentally a people's sport, and specifically a working-class sport. Uh, talk as an Englishman about the 1966 World Cup, which you must love fondly, 
But from a Pele perspective, one of the worst refereeing errors in World Cup history. Yeah, you are. I'm not quite old in that old. <laughs> My only memory of the 1966 World Cup, like I said, I, I grew up in a middle-class family right. in North Surrey. And my uh, dad was a great rugby fan, and he was on the local horticultural society. Mm-hmm. And they decided, I don't know if you have these in South Africa, but we have in, in England the culture of the village flower show. Right. And my dad's great decision, or the committee of the local horticultural society, was to have the uh, Tadworth, Walton and Kingswood Horticultural Society <laughs> summer flower show on the day that England played Argentina in the quarterfinals. <laughs> and my job at the age of seven was to stand on the gate and collect the tickets. Right. It pulled of rain and virtually nobody came and I didn't <laughs> see the game. Uh, by then, uh, Brazil were already out. They went out of the group stage. Right. I mean, basically, Pelé was kicked out, literally, mm, uh, mm. by the, in the, uh, the 66 World Cup. And he was injured in the group stage. Of the six. So although he made it to... Uh, four World Cups, uh, 58, 62, 66, 70. He only really played in two because the 62 World Cup, he was injured uh, in the group stage again. And I was working out his age. I think I'm right in saying he was only 29 when they won in 1970. Sure. I wonder what would have happened yeah. if he'd seen his career through to 1974. Um, but, but he didn't. You know, He went off to play in the States, and I think this shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, obviously he went there to make money. He wasn't earning that much playing for Santos in Brazil. But he was one of the pioneers of spreading the game to, to the USA. Um, and, you know, that, that was, you know, that was very early doors. It took until 1994. USA hosted the 94 World Cup, and now they're regular, regularly competing World Cups and so on. But he, he was a pioneer in that way. He was always a truly internationalist player. Talk about his style of play. Did it change football? This, this small little man uh, who's shorter than I am come onto a pitch and, and just have such control of the football. And I was talking earlier, it's the old leather football, so it's definitely not like it is today. Yeah, I mean, I think we had to be careful getting into kind of cultural, almost racial stereotypes. That only South Americans can play in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But it, it is the case that, you know, there, there's a core of South Americans, you know, who come to... Europe in particular, and they've added something to the European game. I mean, fast-forwarding to another World Cup, 1978, you know, I, I'm a kind of lap Spurs fan. I've gone non-league. I'm so fed up with commercialisation of Premier League. <laughs> but in 1978, Argentina win the World Cup, and Spurs immediately signed Ozzy Ardiles and Ricky Villa. Now, there had been South Americans in the English League in those days of first division prior to that, but nobody had ever signed two World Cup winners you know, within weeks of them lifting the World Cup. And, you know, and that has transformed the English game. I mean, there's, and there's a great writer on football, Simon Cooper, uh, spelled K-U-P-E-R. Um, and he argues we don't, have, we don't have too many foreign players in the English League. We don't have enough. Because what they do is they raise the standard on the training. But imagine if, you know, 50 years ago, you were, you were an apprentice at Spurs or Chelsea, and this guy called Pele, that you never heard of, comes along. And, <laughs> yes. and you signed him, and you get to train with Pele. You know, just imagine, that can only improve either as a defender, you know, the forlorn task of tackling him on the training pitch, or passing the ball to him, or receiving a pass to him. Mm. Uh, the only thing that can happen is your game can improve. I mean, I remember in, um, 
by then I was a season ticket holder at Spurs and coming towards the end of his career but when Klinsman came to Spurs he raised the standard of the whole team there's no doubt about that and he was there for the one season he came back with a kind of comeback season but this glorious season and, and the whole team played better mm. so that's the influence of players of the stature of Pelé, Cruyff and, and Maradona and I think we, now we would add Messi yeah that kind of um, not triumvirate, quad, quad, quadrivirate, or whatever you call it. That's always the debate, isn't it? That it's it's a 11-man sport. 11 men are on the pitch. But as you say, that, that one player just raises everybody else's game. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the, the real team that I remember uh, in my generation is the 1970 World Cup team. You know, Rivellino, Carlos Alberto, the best goal ever scored. I mean, I think the most recent final is the best final ever, but the best goal ever scored remains Carlos Alberto's. He starts to move from the back and he finishes it off like a train in the Italian penalty area. You know, and the Italian team was a good team, uh, a very good team. Um, but, you know, Gerson, Rivellino... Giardino and others. I mean, it's, it's just a fantastic team. I mean, we're really not well known for his goalkeepers, but he had a good goalkeeper in Felix as well. So it was a fantastic team. And and by then, like I said, you know, in '66, people didn't even have black and white TVs, let alone colour TVs. 1970, by then, having a TV was much more common, and colour TVs were beginning to appear. And all of a sudden, you know, football becomes not only a global sport that's played, but a global sport that's, that's watched as well. And that's, that's the big, big technological difference now. Obviously, now people watch it on their phones and their laptops and whatever. Um, and, you know, Palais was just before that period. So the fact that he has that degree of stature you know, in, in the pre-digital age is it, hugely significant. And like I said... I would add Mandela and Mali mm. as well. And I think it's very interesting. To, you know, in an earlier period, you'd say Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King, you know. Sure. Um, in a very white political world, globally, you know, these are black men who've absolutely broken through to a popular audience. Great chatting to you. Thank you. Mark Berryman with those views. Author of England, Travels with a Football Nation. He travels around with all the English fans as they...